The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. Um, Our guest today is somebody I have a tremendous amount of respect for. I've read so many of his articles and his books. He's got a brand new book out called Countdown, and our guest today is Alan Wiseman. This new book is covering a topic that is not new uh, for Go Green Radio listeners, but it does come at the issue of Uh, human population and its impact on the environment from a very unique perspective. And so I'm very excited to have Alan on. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Alan. Thanks very much for having me. Well, congratulations on your new book called Countdown. Of course, you and I both know there are numerous books and articles on this topic of the impact that the burgeoning human population is having on the environment. I'm curious to know um, what inspired you to cover this subject um, and what new information or perspective you intended to add to this discussion. Well, a lot of your listeners um, know or know of my last book, The World Without Us, which became kind of a, a huge global hit. It's out in 34 languages now. And if, if they haven't read it, all you really need to know is that I really wrote it because I want a world with it, with us. It, it was a thought experiment that theoretically wiped human beings off the planet and showed how nature would manage without us here. And it turns out that once relieved of the daily pressures we heap on it, the planet recovers rather brilliantly and amazingly swiftly. Uh, it, it starts to refill empty niches and... Uh, the idea of that book was I, I wanted people to see that, you know, wow, if nature could come back so beautifully, is there a way that we can add ourselves back into the picture only in kind of a harmonious balance and not in mortal combat with the rest of the planet? Mm-hmm. So in the epilogue, I planned on talking about that. But then I ran smack into a very disturbing fact. Uh, you see these figures for population, it's hard to wrap our minds around them, but thanks to the invention of the calculator, mm-hmm. uh, I did some long division and realized that every four to four and a half days, we're adding a million people to the planet, and that didn't seem very sustainable. So in the epilogue, I proposed another thought experiment, uh, theoretically setting aside all the social considerations, which I'm sure we'll talk about in this hour, what if we all participated in the Chinese one-child policy? Uh, and it turns out that within just this very century, we would come back down to about 1.6 billion people, a little over a billion and a half, which is exactly what the population was in 1900 before, for reasons I go into in great length and in countdown, uh, suddenly we doubled, and then we doubled again. We quadrupled in one century. We are part of the most abnormal 
population spurt in the history of biology. So, you know, 1.6 billion, that would give us a lot of room on the planet, um, and it would give a lot of room for other species, you know, who we're, we're basically pushing off the edge of the earth right now. And, and at some point, we might push something off that we you know, didn't realize we needed until mm. it's a little too late. But then, you know, every, nobody likes the Chinese one-child policy, including the Chinese. Nevertheless, I found that readers... Uh, always wanted to talk about this when I was off on book tour, which lasted for a few years. Uh, everybody was concerned that there might be something to this, and I, you know, I was even on Catholic radio programs in front of Mormon audiences in Utah, groups that are you know, associated with large families, and yet I also heard the other side of this thing. It's an explosive topic. There are religious issues, there are economic issues, and then I started looking at the literature, other things that had already been written about it. And frankly, you're right, there's a lot of books, but most of them are dry, they're statistical, or they're written from one point of view or the other. They're either very pro-population control or they are very much anti. Uh, so I'm a journalist. I don't take a point of view. I finally decided that maybe this is something that a journalist really has to look at as dispassionately as possible and to research as thoroughly as possible. Well, I sort of didn't know what I was getting in for because <laughs> it ended up being a huge amount of literature search and a lot of travel. But that's what inspired me. Well, you know, your book is beautifully constructed. And I my degree is in English, so I've read the best of the best in our language. And, you know, I, I have to read a lot of books to put on Go Green Radio. And some of them are uh, more difficult to get myself excited about than others. But yours, I felt like I was just bathing in beautiful language. I mean, the way that you you move from one interviewee to another seems so effortless. I mean, you really have an enjoyable style. And so I, I loved reading the book itself. Well, thank um, you. you bet. And, and, and I am a bit of a, of a book snob. So uh, <laughs> that is not, you know, something that, uh, that I would just throw around. But, you know, you, you interviewed a number of people um, across the globe. And I'm wondering how you decided who you would interview, what made these particular experts or um, community members in various countries interesting to you and worthy of inclusion in your book? Well, there's kind of three things that I was looking for when I was looking for sources. Uh, first of all, you know, as, as I mentioned before, I, this whole idea of looking at population came to me kind of unexpectedly. That wasn't my plan in my last book. Um, so other than realizing, hmm, this might be a problem, I didn't know a lot about it. So I needed to talk to a lot of population experts, demographers. I also needed to talk to the people who were trying to do something about it. Uh, the family planning uh, community, the contraception community, uh, so they were important to me. I also had to look at the cultural communities that were going to either resist this or permit this. Uh, you know, I was very interested in knowing, is there anything, you know, for example, in Catholicism that might possibly, uh, you know, per permit the use 
of or or the, just the idea of managing population at certain mm-hmm. times. So I talked. To, I had to talk to religious leaders all over the world. And they, the, by the way, the Vatican's one of the places I go to in this book. But mm-hmm. I spoke to leaders, uh, you know, Jewish leaders, Muslim leaders, evangelical Protestant leaders, a, a whole variety of, of those people. Uh, scientists I needed to talk to because part of the question of how many people can fit on this planet is how much nature do we need to stay, you know, to keep us in balance. So I needed to particularly talk to ecologists. Uh, in every country that I went to, I sought them out and found them. And then probably the most important group of all was simply talking to people. I mean, this is not just about experts. This is about the people who live this situation. This is about the people who either make a decision to have a certain number of children only or who can't make that decision because they don't have access to the tools or they're prohibited or have been convinced by some belief system that they shouldn't. I needed a whole variety of that. I needed to really understand what we're looking at because I didn't want to write a book that was just describing a problem, but I wanted to know that if is there a practical, humane, acceptable, and affordable approach to this that we could really make a difference. And by the way, I came out of this book more hopeful than I went into it because I found out that actually there is a positive answer to all of those questions. Well, and I don't want to give away the whole thing yet. We will get to that. But one of the things I found most fascinating, and it's right up front uh, in the beginning of the book, is the way that um, some of the folks that you interviewed actually saw population in exactly the opposite way that many of us who discuss this topic see it. Um, This was their means to have political or social uh, influence in their area of the world. And so I found that fascinating and enlightening. You know, I hadn't thought about it in that sense. Um, I, I have read many things about areas where infant mortality rates are high and so families are are, you know, compelled to have large families because not all of the children will make it to adulthood. But this idea of populating uh simply to have more influence for your group or your ethnicity in a certain area of the world was um, very revealing. I found that to be uh, pretty, pretty enlightening. There were four questions that you posed within your book, and I'd love for you to tell us what those four questions were and how you arrived at them as the foundation for your book. Well, you know, it's a, it turns out to be a vast topic, and when I proposed this book, I ended up starting to write an outline. The next thing I knew, I had this 60-page proposal because uh, there was so much that went into it. And then once I started interviewing on this book, I learned that there was so much more that I didn't know I hadn't even talked about in that proposal. So I had to bring this down to a digestible level for myself and for my readers. Uh, you know, that's part of what journalists do is to try to take complex stuff and without dumbing anything down or leaving anything out important, you know, you have to come down to the essence. And the essence turned out to be four questions. Number one, the obvious one, how many people can fit on this planet without capsizing it? You know, is there a limit to uh, to our number? And number two, um, well, in the book it's number three, but this is kind of the converse. Uh how much nature do we need to preserve in order to ensure our own survival? 
And as I showed in the world without us, the world's going to be fine with or without us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes on splendidly. But, you know, all my readers are homo sapiens, and we're all interested in not letting our own species go extinct. But we need to know how much nature do we depend on and, and, and what species might be essential to our survival. Number three, uh, is there anything in the histories or the liturgies uh, or the experiences of the, a wide swath, the majority of the world's cultural groups or tribes, etc., that might accept the idea of, so to speak, uh, refraining from embracing so much uh, mm-hmm. in a time of need. And as I mentioned before, I found that virtually every religion does have something that would not require making people suddenly drop their belief system uh, and you know decide, oh, well, what I believed all my life was wrong, now I have to believe something else. But, but to realize that there's something in their religion that could embrace this. And that's why I went to so many different countries, 21 and all, and that's why I talked to so many religious leaders, among other things. And the fourth is if the healthy, sustainable number of humans is fewer than the 11 billion we're headed to by the end of this century or the 7.2 billion we're already at, how do we design an economy for a shrinking world uh, and, and for one that finally reaches an optimum size and then we want to be a steady state that doesn't constantly grow? Is, is there a way that we can be prosperous without constant growth as we so often hear from uh, pro-growth economists? That's so, right. You know, and at one point, uh, in fact, a couple points, but at one point I was, I was at... Um, I'm not going to name it. It was one of the world's top universities uh, in the British Isles. And this guy says to me, you know, you, you're asking the most important questions on Earth, and they may be impossible to answer. And I said, you know, I'm not an expert like you. I'm just a journalist. When someone tells me these are the most important questions, we damn well better try. That's right. And on that, we're going to take a quick commercial break. But don't go away, for it. folks. We have much, much more with Alan Wiseman and his new book, Countdown. So don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Glad that you could all join us. If you happen to just be tuning in, no worries. Let me bring you up to speed. Our guest today is Alan Wiseman, and he's got a new book out called Countdown. And this book covers the issue of the impact that human population has on the sustainability of the planet. And he brings to light so many various perspectives and has interviewed people literally around the world from all different aspects of uh, fields of study, um, normal, everyday people, um, just a wide variety of perspectives. I think one of the things that many of our listeners who are from North America, specifically the United States, one of the things that makes this issue kind of hard is that a lot of what we read about huge populations are not within our borders. I mean, we're talking about India. We're talking about China. Uh, They have large populations. Uh, We hear about uh, high birth rates in various parts of Africa. And so it's not the easiest thing to sell, you know, on the soccer field or, you know, around the lunch table, you know, work um, and and make people really care about it. And yet, um, this is something that I've talked with my listeners about before. As a former naval officer, um, I have been aware for some time that even back in the late 50s, President Eisenhower identified population growth as a matter of strategic security for the United States. And at that point, uh, we had half, or actually less than half, of our current population. And so, Alan, I'd love for you to help all of our American listeners understand why population, no matter where it's happen, you know, happening, population growth is a matter of strategic importance to the United States. Why should we care? Well, um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that we're in the most abnormal population growth spurt in, in biological history. And the reason for this, we have to understand so, so we can get to why Eisenhower was prescient enough to become concerned about this back in the 50s. Uh, Every species on the planet is designed to make not just copies of itself, but extra copies of itself, because infant mortality is always very high. And we used to, you know, most of our babies wouldn't survive to their fifth birthday. Uh, So population grew very, very slowly for most of human history. But then in the 19th century, starting with the smallpox vaccine and then things like pasteurization of milk, and other vaccines, we started to 
lower infant mortality hugely, and people were living longer because of all these great medical advances. You know, before population uh, or life expectancy was 40 years, so a lot of us wouldn't be around who are over that age now. And then in the 20th century, things took a real quantum leap. I mean, suddenly the line, instead of sloping upward, was, was shooting straight skyward because we learned to do two things to enormously increase the amount of food on the planet. First, nitrogen fertilizer. We learned how to pull nitrogen out of the air, slather it chemically on the soil. Uh, before, it was only a few nitrogen-fixing plants that contributed that important nutrient. But we, we just brutal it off of what nature could do. And then the Green Revolution later in the 1960s uh, you know, increased greatly the amount of grain per stock. But just nitrogen fertilizer alone, I mean, without it, 40% of us would not be here. That's how significantly it contributed to food production. So after World War II which we have to remember, Japan started World War II because of overpopulation. Uh, it wanted to expand into Manchuria. Then, of course, it got so greedy, it kept going, and finally, you know, the war collapsed on it. Uh, but Eisenhower realized that we were pushing $3 billion, and this was unprecedented. So he appointed one of his allied generals, uh, William Henry Draper, to a commission to study it. And they came back with a report saying that it was really the single biggest global security issue in the post-war era. And Draper spent the rest of his life uh, as a population management advocate. Now, in Countdown, I went to you know one very vivid example of this. One of the two countries that were the first recipients of the Green Revolution was Pakistan. It was on the verge of famine, and then they brought in all these new crops, which, of course, you know, depend on a lot of chemistry to make them grow, but you know, we'll talk about those effects later. But the important thing is, is that Pakistan and also India, the other recipient, were saved from famine. So now, as a result, you know, as a result all these kids, all these people who didn't die, lived to beget children, who then live to beget more children. India is about to surpass China as the most populous country on earth, and Pakistan is just one of the fastest growing. Pakistan's got close to 200 million people in it now, and it's it's a country that's just a little bit bigger than Texas, which has 26 million people. Oh and my. they can't possibly afford to create jobs to employ all of these people, so you've got all these frustrated, angry uh, under or unemployed young men, and you know we know what they become. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the middle of the century, at, at the current growth rates, Pakistan will have nearly 400 million people. That's nearly 25 percent more than the United States has today. The entire United States, and it'll still be the size of Texas. Mm-hmm. So it's out of control. The whole time I was there, there were. There was warfare breaking out in Karachi, which is not one of the most problematic cities. Uh, there were grenade battles mm-hmm. uh, to the people I knew I wanted to interview who were trying to save the mangrove forests around Karachi Harbor. Uh, the day before, were found tortured and floating in the harbor. You know, they'd been they'd been murdered. I mean, this is a country that really is out of control, and it's a nuclear power. Well, and that's what I was going to get to. You know, I mean, again, up until that last statement, you think, well, again, what does this have to do with the United States? Although, since 9-11... 
people are starting to make the connection between frustrated young men in other countries and what they're capable of doing here if they get really mad and decide that it's all our fault, that they're miserable. Um, But in addition, as you mentioned, um, that's one of the issues. We have some of these extremely population-stressed areas with nuclear capability and not all of them have ICBM capability, you know, intercontinental ballistic missile capability to shoot it to our shores. But certainly because we're a global economy, they have the, you know, the ability to disrupt other parts of our national interest without all a doubt. all kinds of things that they can do. You know, it just takes smuggling in a little nuclear nuclear material and, mm-hmm. you know, dumping some plutonium in some city's water supply. It's called a dirty yeah. bomb. I mean, you know, every terrorist out there is someone who was frustrated in the opportunity to get educated or, or get a satisfying employment. Mm-hmm. And that's the bottom line. Well, interestingly enough, you know, evidence is showing that in addition to, you know, the stresses and strains that our environment is under, uh, just with normal climatary, you know, conditions and, and the population that we have, that climate change may stress the system even more. And I'm curious to know what your research showed in terms of how climate change interacting with population growth will exacerbate some of these problems. Well, this is a big reason why I wrote this book. I've written a lot about renewable energy and its possibilities in the past. And yet the uptake on renewable energy just, you know, it's very, very slow in this world. Uh, we don't have the capabilities of running all our cities and our factories and our vehicles and our Chinas and Indias on renewable power right now. There are a lot of forces that are trying to keep it that way because they make a lot of money doing things with fossil fuels. So I realize if we are locked into fossil fuels for the near future or even the midterm, the one thing that we can control is maybe the number of consumers of that energy because, you know, this is technology we already have. We know how to do contraception. But the numbers are very sobering. Uh, you look at the graph of how carbon dioxide has increased in the atmosphere, and it tracks directly with how our population has increased. And right now there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than there has been in 3 million years. And back then the seas were 80 to 100 feet higher. Also 15 million years ago, same situation. Now those were natural occurrences, but this one is also a natural occurrence that is being caused by one particular species that has become really energy hungry. And the energy does beautiful things. We you know, have this wonderful jet-propelled society, but unfortunately the waste products of, those energy, of that energy is now literally clamping a lid on our planet right now that is changing not just atmospheric chemistry, but the chemistry of the seas. And our food chain begins in the seas. So this is really problematic. Well, and I think, too, going back to the national security issue, um, there are a lot of, and you can find these publicly just by Googling them, but there are military studies showing the impact that climate refugees will have on national security as well. And think of this, too. Uh, it is pretty accepted in the scientific literature that for every one degree centigrade of warming, grain harvests are going to drop 
by 10% because all grains, corn, wheat, and, and rice are pretty much at their temperature threshold. Mm-hmm. And uh, that means as population continues to increase, we're going to add nine, we're going to add two billion more uh, in the next 35 years. Uh, we're going to have less food and also as seas rise, and they are rising, I mean, I'll go back to Pakistan again, you know, one country where I watched seas are pushing their way up the Indus River Delta, and every year more villages are, you know, their, their soils are just too saline to grow anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, you th- think about the most important food crop on this planet, rice. How much of it is grown at sea level? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so what are we going to do? We're going to put dikes around all of Asia? It's astronomically unaffordable. Uh, so right. these are all going to be security issues when food fights break out. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, uh, we'll talk more about the Green Revolution and technology um, that has been employed that both has impacted the population we see now. We'll see how it can impact the population that we continue to have to feed into the 21st century. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad to have you all with us. I'd like to give a big shout out to all my tweeps. If you're not one of them, you can follow me and I'll follow you back. My handle is at Jill Buck. Um, and we oftentimes have a very uh, robust discussion on Twitter while the show is going on. 
so you can join us out there. Today, our guest, if you happen to just be tuning in, is Alan Wiseman with his new book, Countdown. Um, and, and it's all about uh, the impact of human population and especially population growth on the sustainability of our, of our planet and what we can actually support on this globe of ours in terms of human beings, the numbers, the needs. Um, before we went to break, we were talking a bit about the Green Revolution, um, this idea that science could help us feed the world. And a lot of people believe, or maybe they just want to hope, that technology can fix everything. And when it comes to population growth, some people say that, hey, the Green Revolution in agriculture can help us feed the masses. What did your research show on that topic, Alan? Well, as I mentioned before, the Green Revolution combined with nitrogen fertilizer, because all those crops were designed to take advantage of nitrogen fertilizer, uh, enormously increased survivability on this planet uh, by eradicating famine. And that, in turn, has produced an awful lot of people. Now, it's it's really one of the most confusing parts of this story for some people because, very famously, back before there were even a billion people on the planet, uh, an economist named Thomas Robert Malthus predicted that there would always be famine because as population increased exponentially, meaning it doubles, uh, food production only increases arithmetically, meaning you know it just goes in a straight line. It's not multiplying. And then in the 1960s, two ecologists from Stanford, Paul and Ann Ehrlich, wrote a book called The Population Bomb uh, that basically said, look, what Malthus said is coming true because we're now at three and a half billion and there's about to be famines breaking out. They did say in the preface, though, that unless there's an agricultural miracle, and then that's when the Green Revolution coincidentally happened. Mm-hmm. And so many people still today point to it and say, look, that refuted Malthus and that debunked the Ehrlichs. The one person, though, who absolutely did not say that and this I learned when I went to the Green Revolution Centers. That was the maize and wheat, corn and wheat improvement in Mexico and rice improvement in Philippines. Was Norman Borlaug, the legendary founder of the Green Revolution, who was given the Nobel Peace Prize for being credited with saving more human lives than anybody in human history. When he gave his Nobel acceptance speech, he didn't gloat over that. What he said was that we've basically bought time, uh, but unless the food enhancement production is accompanied by population control, and that's the word that he used, we are going to be in severe trouble because he understood the paradox of food. The more you produce, the more people survive to have more people, etc., and Borlaug, like General Draper, spent the rest of his life on the board of population groups trying to get people to see this. So at the Green Revolution Centers, everybody thanked me for coming down to talk about population because they said it just has disappeared from the table. What they also told me was that in the next 50 years, we have to produce more food than has been consumed in all of human history. Mm. And uh, you know, when I went to the Vatican and, and I asked, because you know, Pope 
Benedict was very big on saying there's enough food on the planet for everybody if we share equitably. Um, and and I asked, uh, first of all, I wanted to know by everybody, did he mean just homo sapiens or did he need, mean other mm. species too? Because, you know, God makes it pretty clear to Noah in Genesis that in order to save humanity, you also have to save the animals. We can't have a world without them. I circled that part in your book. I thought yeah, that but, was but a great I also point. wanted to know, okay, how are we going to feed everybody if the church still encourages population control? And they said transgenic plants that are being developed at the Green Revolution Centers. So what they showed me at both of those centers is that they are trying to hot rod photosynthesis. They're trying to increase the amount of sunlight that plants can convert into energy to produce more food and possibly even to fix their own nitrogen. But everybody told me that if, even if they can, and they don't know if they can, even if they can, this stuff is two to three decades off to be commercially viable, and by then we're going to have two to two and a half billion more people, so uh, the success will be absorbed by population growth rate, and they're very concerned about it. They told me that that's the biggest single problem that they confront, and that means well, you us, know, too. You know, one of the things, and, and I tend to boil things down into really simple terms, um, and for me, one of the things I see about the Green Revolution and our agricultural system is that every step of the way, it is reliant upon fossil fuels. And then I juxtapose that to a very simple truth. Fossil fuels are finite. That's <laughs> a well, finite, well, non-renewable finite, energy and source. And so, at some point, the way that we're doing business in, in agribusiness is going to have a big problem with the supply, the energy supply needed in order to farm and produce and transport the food system as we have it. Uh, go ahead. Well, share your thoughts. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, fossil fuels are finite. And now, you know, everybody suddenly thinks that we're awash in natural gas. And so problem is solved once again. Well, the fact is, is that natural gas wells, you know, from fracturing the bedrock, which we're now you know, doing underneath suburbs of Cleveland, uh, we've gotten so desperate to try to find this stuff. These wells deliver for a couple of years and then then diminishing returns set in and none of them is expected to have more than a 20-year lifespan. So we're going to run out of that stuff too. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, it takes fossil fuels as a feedstock for nitrogen fertilizer. It takes a lot of fossil fuels for the energy to create it. When nitrogen breaks, fertilizer breaks down, it produces nitrous oxide, which after methane is our third most potent greenhouse gas. Mm-hmm. So we're getting slammed on both ends by the use of fossil fuels. I mean, you know, I said 40% of us depend on nitrogen fertilizer to be alive. We're basically eating oil. That's one way to think of it. Well, exactly. And, and you know, there's so many ways to look at you know these these issues but when it all comes down to the brass tacks feeding people takes fossil fuels the way we're doing it and i don't see any rapid movement to to recreate a system you know like the green revolution like agribusiness that is fueled entirely upon renewable energy and so when our non-renewable energy sources run out we're in a pickle there's and there's one other aspect that we really need to think about that was a prime topic that came up over and over again as I was researching this book. 
right now, 40% of the terrestrial planet that isn't locked under ice is devoted to feeding one species. That's us. That's mm-hmm. land that we either graze or cultivate. And that is just a really lopsided figure. That's why we are now losing species at a faster rate than has happened since that asteroid slammed into the Yucatan 65 million years ago and did away with the dinosaurs and and, and 60% of everything else that was alive on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, this rate of extinction is undercutting our survival on this planet. We exist on this planet because of a very robust support system of plant and animal life. And as we're taking away big chunks of it, you know, once again, it's like pulling bricks out of your foundation at one point, and you never know which until you pull the wrong brick, the thing's going to collapse. Well, let me ask you this, uh, because this is one of the questions you were posing in your book. What was your conclusion to the question, is there an acceptable, nonviolent way to convince people that it's in our best interest to reduce our numbers? Fortunately, I found several acceptable nonviolent ways done in several different countries with several different kinds of cultures that all were culturally appropriate. And let me give you two quick examples here. Uh, you know, one, Mexico, you know, everybody's concerned about the immigration, you know, situation in the United States, and that's because Mexico hasn't been able to support a large population. Uh, but Mexico, in the past quarter century, has taken control of its fertility rate, and it's now very close to replacement, meaning two people have two children, and therefore uh, population doesn't grow. Mm-hmm. Um, Mexico did it through television, the soap opera, the telenovela, which you see all over Mexico. Uh, in the 1970s, they started showing a show that first, just subtly, you know, small families were doing a lot better than big families. And then it was wrapped into the script, you know, like a wife was saying, oh, I'm so tired. I can't have another, I can't get pregnant again. The macho husband was saying, what? I need more sons. And and then, you know, over a series of episodes, they fight. And, and then finally, he sees the light. And as you watch the 10-year lifespan of that series, as viewership soared up, fertility rates dropped down. And now it's become cultural in Mexico. Another example that really surprises a lot of people uh, in the United States is because it, it involves an Islamic republic. In 1979, Iran had its Islamic revolution. And it was immediately attacked by Saddam Hussein. He wanted to grab this oil-rich province on the border because he figured this country was, you know, disorganized after having overthrown centuries of dynastic rule, and it would be easy pickings. He also had the backing of NATO. He had sophisticated weaponry, and NATO was providing the components for nerve gas, which he had no problems with using. Mm -hmm. Iran just had people, so it started throwing waves of soldiers at the invaders, and the Ayatollah then asked every fertile woman to do her patriotic duty and help build a 20-million-man army to fend off the invaders. And Iran managed to hold them to a stalemate, and the war finally ended after eight years. But then the economist, who was head of planning and budget, warned the Ayatollah that they were going to be in the same position that Pakistan is today. These kids were going to grow up, that were all born in this population spurt, and uh, they wouldn't be able to employ them all. 
So they agreed that they needed to do family planning. But by then, the Chinese policy had been going on for 10 years, and nobody liked that. So they did a a four-point plan that was totally voluntary. First of all, the the current Ayatollah, because he took over around then, uh, issued a fatwa saying there's nothing in the Quran that says if wisdom dictates you've got the number of children you can responsibly care for, that that you can't use birth control. That anything up to and including operations is fine, religiously. Second, they made all that stuff available throughout the country as devout. Muslim woman who was an OBGYN told me about how they used to go on horseback brigades to these far villages, bringing surgical teams and condoms and everything in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing that was obligatory was premarital classes for couples, uh, which is not a bad idea for any of us, frankly. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, and uh, among other things, they talked about how much does it cost to raise, feed, clothe, and educate a child. And the fourth thing, really the most important, perhaps, is that they encourage girls to stay in school. Because Mm -hmm. when a girl is studying, she tends to defer her childbearing until their studies are over, and then once out, she's got something interesting and useful, economically helpful to her family uh, to do. And, you know, if she wants to be a mom, you know, uh, she'll, on the average, educated women who get through secondary school worldwide will have two children or fewer. Mm-hmm. You know, because you, you, you can't exercise your profession if you've got seven or eight kids hanging on you. And Iran came, you know, today 60% of university students in Iran are female, and Iran came down to replacement rate a year faster than China with its one-child policy. Interesting. So you have two examples, one a basically Catholic nation and one that's a Muslim nation uh, doing these very positive, voluntary uh, approaches that that change the culture. And I think that that's, you know, when people make that decision voluntarily, it sticks much more than obligatory measures. We've got to take a quick commercial break. Government intervention in this one, other than the government providing funding for contraception so people can decide for themselves. I mean, this is a matter where where liberals and conservatives can come together on this one. It's all about individual choice. Well said. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with Alan Wiseman, so don't go away, folks. Much more Go Green Radio right after this. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could join us. 
Our guest today, if you happen to just be tuning in, is Alan Wiseman and his new book, Countdown. You know, Alan, one of the most troubling things when we start talking about um, reducing our population or, you know, encouraging couples to go at replacement rate or lower is that our economy is based on growth. Um, The global economy, our nation's economy, it requires us to keep feeding more and more workers into the economy to produce more and more stuff, to take care of those who are getting older and all these social programs. And um, I'm curious to know how, based on your research, how do we go about creating an economy that can prosper without relying on constant growth? One of the places I go to in this book to look at the economic question is Japan, which is one the first developed nation that has a the first nation really that has a shrinking population now, and the reason for that is because having lost World War II, uh, their economy was just in tatters and. Their soldiers came back just like American soldiers and reunited with their wives, and they had a baby boom, and suddenly it was disaster because uh, people were starving to death. Uh, pregnant women were literally throwing themselves in front of trains. So an emergency measure in 1949, uh, the Japanese government legalized abortion. Remember, this is before birth control pills. And millions of Japanese women partook rather than watch another baby die of hunger. So what they have now is a situation where as the the last pre-war generation begins to pass on, there's a much smaller generation taking their place, and they in turn, partly because of high education, uh, you know, have had fewer children. So Japan's numbers by the middle of the century will be approaching its World War II population. And a lot of economists are terrified by this, you know, because they say there's going to be fewer people paying into the coffers for you know, for senior citizens, and and uh, this is just all wrong. Well, I met a visionary economist in Japan. He's at no rebel. He's with a major policy institute, Akihiko Matsutani, who has written about how Japan will transition to a sustainable economy with a shrinking population. And he actually sees this as a great opportunity for Japan. For one, the big population bubble of older people is going to even out uh, after a generation or so. Uh, Second, the elderly today are are much healthier than elderly used to be, remain economically uh, viable. Many people over 65 work as opposed to children who really are one of the, you know, other than being fetching and wonderful, they're one of the biggest economic drags on any society because they don't really contribute much to an economy until they get out of school, and schools cost a lot of money. So it's not going to be as bad as a lot of pro-growth economists warn us. I mean, frankly, pro-growth economists really want big populations, uh, in part because there's more consumers, but the big reason is because that makes labor cheaper. Uh, you got a bunch of poor people fighting over bad salaries. <laughs> what Matsutani says is going to happen in Japan, and it's already starting to happen, is that as there are fewer laborers, they become more valuable, so their wages are not going to drop. Uh, they also, and I, and I do in the book, I follow these young people. 
who are now moving into the interior of Japan, away from these big crowded port cities that traditionally have imported a lot of raw materials to create stuff to export away. Uh, they're moving into the interior because you know, land that's been abandoned by the dying off generation is 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 cheaper and, and housing is cheaper, and light industries are starting to follow them. They're going to make uh, you know useful goods for the domestic uh, population. As demand drops, as population drops, that means that you know, that hours will drop. Wages will remain up there, but people will have more leisure time to enjoy more space, which, you know, frankly, is a lot nicer than the idea of your classic Japanese worker now who goes to work at 7 a.m., gets home after 10 p.m., and has enough money to buy some consumer toys to enjoy for about 45 minutes before he or she collapses. Yeah. So it, look, it's going to be a tricky transition over the next couple of decades, but... You know, Matsutani predicts it's going to be a lot smoother than people think of. You know, I was there right after Fukushima. Uh, Japan had just lost all of its nuclear power as well as one of its biggest fruit-growing areas. And everybody was talking about, uh, you know, rebuilding the ports, the fishing ports. But as he pointed out, that's going to take 20 years. By then, they're only going to have about a quarter of the number of fishermen. So that would be just a total waste. People have to look at our situation right now and plan for this kind of stuff, and then we we really will have enough money to make the transition. You know, I can think of plenty of stuff that your government and mine does that uh, for a generation could be used to help senior citizens uh, until our population balances out at a more sustainable level. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no doubt about that. Um you know, you said earlier in the show that by the end of this exercise of, of writing this book, you were more hopeful than you were even when you began. And I'd like for you to tell us why that is. What's the silver lining in all of this, Alan? That this is something that we can do technologically. This doesn't involve creating, you know, magical, uh, you know, new energy out there. We know how to do contraception. The book also talks about the new male contraceptives that are coming online that are probably chemically simpler than female contraception. Uh, and it's cheap. In order to, to provide enough contraception for everyone on the planet to decide whether or not to use it would cost, it's been calculated by three different demographic institutes that I'm aware of and universities. Uh, it costs a little over $8 billion a year, about $8.1 billion a year. Now, that's what the United States was spending per month in Afghanistan and Iraq during much of the last decade. The United States, I'm very proud to say, is the biggest donor for contraceptive programs abroad. And all, you know, all we need to do is maintain that. I'm not a member of a political party. I vote for people who I think are are honest or, or the most honest that we get. And and yet, you know, if Obama's opponents would have won this last um, election, they vowed to cut severely the funding that the U.S. provides, which is one of the things that we do best, both in helping the planet and also gaining, you know, popular support outside of our borders. Uh, it would have been insane to cut that funding for family planning because just a half a child more per woman in this world would be headed to $16 billion by the end of the century, which is totally uh, impossible. But 
than a half a child fewer if we made this universally available. We'd be headed to six billion by the end of the century. We'd be well on our way towards towards a sustainable population. So this is something that we can do. We know how to do it. We curry great favor for doing it, and it's cheap. And that gives me a great deal of hope. Well, Alan, I really appreciate you coming on the show. This has been so enlightening and and such a different uh, vantage point than we've discussed this topic uh, before. And I really appreciate the book. I encourage our listeners to get out and find Countdown. It's available all the usual places that you buy books and by Alan Wiseman. Uh, Pick it up. It's an enjoyable read. Even though the topic seems difficult, it actually, the way that he's written it is quite beautiful. Um, We're going to be here, folks. Same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.